Hello, everyone, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ben Hong, and today on our panel we have Ari. Hello. And Tessa. Hi. And so today we're here to talk about a feature that you've probably heard about when talking about View Three, and that is the Composition API. And so to kick us off, I guess Ari, what are some of the things like you've heard of about the Composition API? My mind would go blank as soon as you ask that. <laughs> <laughs> A what I've heard about it, or at least my general understanding of it, is that it allows us to break down parts of a component into pieces that we can use across multiple components. Great. And what about you, Tessa? What are your impressions of the Composition API? Oh, see, now I feel flustered because I was prepared for the question you asked Ari, which is, what have you heard? And so I was thinking <laughs> about that. <laughs> what have you heard totally works, too. Yeah, well, the first thing I remember hearing was that it was replacing the options API. <laughs> Big disclaimer, then... <laughs> that's not happening. Big disclaimer. Okay, actually, actually, I guess technically the first thing I heard was that hooks were coming to view. And then I yeah. think at the conference we were at where like Divya, I think this was UConf in 2018, maybe Divya was going to give a talk about hooks. And if I recall correctly, I think that's where Evan talked about, well, we're moving from hooks to this composition idea. I'm not sure what the difference is. That's just my vague memory from hearing about it through the crowd. Yeah. And then the next thing I remember was, oh, it's not replacing the options API. I also still don't really understand what hooks are in React. So there's that. <laughs> but yeah, I heard the same thing. It's like hooks. And I'm like, whatever that means. Yeah, I did a workshop on hooks. And my one takeaway is, oh, I don't have to write classes. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the way at least I think of hooks is just rather than our traditional paradigms of like props or like slots. So in React, rather than that sort of pass down method, it's a little bit like the event bus where you have this thing that things can hook into. Stop and so you can bad words. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's a little bit like the provide inject idea too, where you have this provider and then it can inject into different components rather than it needing to be a child of something or whatnot. So it's more of a shared functionality concept, at least from what I've used in the React Hooks uh, ecosystem. Okay, well, that's perfect, because Provide and Inject is another API I happen to be a complete expert on. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> We're kidding. I just didn't know. Yeah, you you don't have to have like a direct parent-child relationship to share data across components. Is that the correct takeaway? Not even just data, just even functionality, right? Because you could provide functions that other components might want to use. So it's really like, think the mixins idea, right? So more of us are familiar with mixins, where you can refactor a component that will share search functionality in different places. But as we know, mixins has its gotchas when it comes to side effects and not really being able to track where things are coming from, just because of the way it happens to be named and the way it's imported. And so Composition API is really sort of the solution to this feature that people have been wanting, which is like the ability to share features across different components in a way that's modular, but in a way that also you can maintain and track. What did you mean about side effects? So side effects meaning sometimes you have either naming collisions with the mixins that you don't know what's inside your mixins. So it's a little unclear as to whether or not something inside of it might have another effect in your reactive data, especially when people start relying on it at a bigger scale and you had a lot of things touching the mixins or what's inside of it. That's what I meant as far as side effects, just things that you just sort of like, wait, where did that come from? It's not supposed to work like that. And it's like, oh, actually, when you look at it, it is. It's just not intuitive. <laughs> Yeah, my favorite is when I'm looking at a component and I missed the line at the top that said mixins. 
And then I see like this prop somewhere down in there. And I'm like, what? Where is that? And then so like I search <laughs> in that file for it, but that's the only place it is. So then I delete it and somehow everything's broken. I'm like, but <laughs> and then I see Mix and I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, so then why is the composition API better? How does it solve this problem? Yeah. The reason why Composition API is so interesting to people is because what Vue is allowing you to do, right, with the Options API, it was very explicit as far as where you kept things, right? Data goes here, computer goes here, methods goes here. It's very consistent. I think one of the reasons why a lot of us love it, right, because that helped us to keep code organized in a way that made sense. But as we know, as certain components grow to a size where it doesn't always make sense to refactor to a separate component, now you find yourself when you're editing a feature, you're jumping up to the data block, but then down to the methods block, but then up to computed, and then maybe back. And then so this is not how we would write code naturally in this particular case, right? It might make more sense if you're writing JavaScript to just declare your variables up top, modify a couple of things, and have like a single basic thing of a utility JS file that contains everything you need from the feature, right? That's what you would typically want from a writing experience. When you're authoring a feature, right, that jumping around can be difficult when you have multiple features colliding with each other, if that makes sense. Yes, so. I don't think I've ever thought about what way to write code is natural. I feel like I do a lot more jumping around when I'm coming into a new component versus when I'm writing my own stuff. Yeah, I think maybe the easier way of thinking, there's a classical example in one of the blog posts that Chris Fritz wrote, where he sort of color codes the scope within like an options API, like what is relevant to what. So if you're doing a search functionality, right, data might have search input, the computer might be like process search input, and then you might have an API call in your methods. But then again, like, so you have these things kind of like spread out. And so when you conflate that with filtering, and then you conflate that with something else on your page that's doing and your data store is sort of like your Vuex modules, you want to be able to kind of namespace them in a way that like you can track. So rather than having one big instance of stuff happening by splitting them up into individual pieces, right, which is why mixins were what people's original approach to mixins was. Break off those pieces like a search mixin and then inject it in and then you're good. Except as we know, mixins has its downsides. So Composition API aims to allow you to do that in a way that doesn't have the side effects that Mixin does. Can you expand further on what you mean by conflate data with filtering? Yeah, so I meant from like a functionality perspective. So for a search functionality, you might be tracking what the user is typing in, and you might track what the response is. And then, so those different pieces of search that are important, like the overall search functionality. But then when you're filtering something, that might be different, right? That might be another form that tracks what checkboxes the user is ticking off that will impact how data is maybe computed to like render on the screen. And so you have these really, from a functionality perspective, they're scoped in what they're doing, right? Whether you're searching for something, whether you're filtering for something. But in the options API right now, all that gets kind of mixed up together, sort of like broken up amongst the data, the computed, the methods, and lifecycle hooks. And so this can make it kind of a little bit of spaghetti code when you're trying to maintain things, because it's hard to sort of see what touches what without running into other code that has nothing to do with the code you're trying to touch. Because that's what we like about components, right? If you're modifying a button, you're not modifying the list at the same time, like you're just modifying the button. And so in components, when you have so many features that it's hard to tell what's talking to what anymore, this is really where people start to want to break things apart. And so this is where Composition API can sort of shine, basically. For me, why the Composition API would be useful really clicked. Only once I had been in a project for a while, and the scope of certain features had grown, you start off with a relatively simple feature. And then over time, due to, you know, 
business demands, you need to add another layer onto that feature. And so, okay, one layer, that's fine. But then when you start to have four layers in one feature, I would always start by trying to keep things sort of in order of when the feature was added so that I knew that things like at the bottom of data went with things at the bottom of methods and the things at the bottom of computed properties. But after a while, that all starts to get mixed up. Up or mixed in. Then I was like, oh, that's why. That's why you want it. Okay. Because <laughs> then I can just take all those out separately and then put them in a big pot at the end. I was trying to think of a more specific example of what type of thing you would layer features onto, but I'm somehow completely drawing a blank. But I feel like <laughs> everyone has had that experience, you know, where like something started small and they're like, oh, what if we added this? What if we added this? And you're like, oh, God, please stop. <laughs> My component is now like a thousand lines long. <laughs> I think Damian has an exercise like that where he's like, make a button with text on it. And then he's like, add an icon. What if you need a loading state? What if this? What if that? And it just becomes a disaster. So I think Ari brings up an excellent point that when Composition API just hasn't quite clicked, like, why would I need that? The options API is working for me. Like, that's great. That means you don't need it. And I think that's really important to emphasize here is that this is not something you need to go and rewrite your app in. It's a technique that when you have this problem that you need, just like in Damien's button example, there's a reason why a component that's props heavy becomes very difficult to maintain because now you basically have to read documentation to use it. And why slots becomes an incredible asset and tool to solve a problem of too many props. And so similarly, the composition API is not like a drop the options do composition. It's an additive thing that when you have a problem that it can solve, it's really great for that. So what I'm hearing isn't that there's necessarily a correct or intuitive way to write code so much as these are two different ways to organize or compartmentalize your component's code. Yeah, that's totally fair. To say that it's about intuition, yeah, everyone writes code differently. So I do take that back. <laughs> um, that is totally fair. There's a different mental model and paradigm for how one might organize their code. And so the other thing to keep in mind with the Composition API, which I think a lot of people don't realize, is that what it's really doing is, as we talked about with options, right, we have these blocks where we define data, computed methods, and like lifecycle hooks. And so I sort of see those as like guardrails, right? Like you had given us a clear path for how to do certain things. Composition API takes all that away and says, here are all the tools available to you. Good luck. <laughs> and that's, I think, an important flip side that has to be considered here is that now when it comes to code architecture and when it comes to how things should be organized or more or less like how things even work, now there's a lot more of a learning curve to this because now Vue basically says, here, you can do things and treat reactive data the way you want. You can do things and organize the way you want. But now this means you need to know how everything works. And this is probably the biggest gotcha when it comes to the composition API because now there are these sort of additional learning curve when it comes to getting ramped up on it. Okay. So Ben, as we all know, you are a member of the core team. Has there been any concern raised that you may have just handed users massive foot guns? <laughs> yes, uh, 100%. There were lots of concerns as far as foot guns. And for those who might not have heard that before, basically the idea that you would make mistakes that we might have been able to protect from otherwise is the idea from trying to avoid foot guns. Wait, sorry. I understand why we want to avoid foot guns. Can you explain what a foot gun is? So when you shoot yourself in the foot, <laughs> it comes from that. So we're handing you a gun specifically to shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> Great. Where do I sign up? <laughs> 
And I think to Ari's question, this is incredibly important because like any technique in view, there are actually a lot of times escape hatches to how things are normally done, right? Because for example, you don't have to use templates in a single file component. You can use a render function. And those escape hatches always have foot guns because with freedom, there's basically the possibility you'll make a mistake or something like basically something to go wrong. But I think this is actually one of the things that makes Vue powerful is because when you don't need it, it's there. It provides like the safety rails to make sure everything goes fine. But in the moment you need to hack something that's a more custom, Vue doesn't want to be so opinionated that it keeps you locked in. And I think that was one of the problems people had is that they found that the options API in certain contexts ended up boxing them in and either choosing certain software anti-patterns and those sort of things. Like it ended up sort of creating basically an unpleasant developer experience because you want to be able to break out when you need to. And so in that regard, that's why it's so important to remember that the composition API is additive. And then yes, it comes with foot guns. Yes, there are going to be weird gotchas, like when you're using refs to create reactive properties that does not value. There's like, there's these things you'll have to start learning and picking up. But again, that's all the more reason why to remember that if it's not something you need to use immediately in production, there's not necessarily a reason to rewrite it. Certainly play around with it in your own code bases. I know I myself are like building little fun side projects where I just use the composition API to see how it feels and what kind of gotchas there are. But otherwise, it's not something that you need to immediately go out and learn unless you have a problem you're trying to solve with it. It's interesting to hear because from my perspective, playing with Vue 3, I feel like it's gotten a lot more opinionated, like just using the same defaults I did with Vue 2. Every time I write some code, the linter is like, well, we're not going to build the app because we don't like the way you wrote this. And I'm like, it's my side project. Let me do what I want. Stop blocking my trash code from building. (laughs) But I digress. Do you have a specific example of when that happened? It happened last night. I don't remember why, because it was last night and my brain resets, (laughs) but... (laughs) Yeah, going back to Composition API, what would be a good way for users to start learning how it works and understanding when to use it? Yeah, so this is one of the things where because Composition API is so new, the learning resources are a little bit more limited. Certainly, I would say check out the docs, but we're still also, as we're exploring the best ways to teach this and what things people might misunderstand, it's a good place to start. But I know that Lachlan Miller, who's also on the team, recently released his Vue.js 3 like Composition API course. You can find that on Udemy. We'll drop it in the show notes. So I know he has a whole thing dedicated to that. That does come with TypeScript too, but there's starting to be more resources on this, but I have taken some of his course already and can definitely recommend it. Even if you don't have a lot of TypeScript experience, it kind of walks you through it. So don't let that scare you off if you see that. But yeah, Docs, and honestly, the team is still looking to always explore what sort of the extent and impact of the composition API is. So always feel free to reach out to us and then file some issues and ask questions in the docs issue repo so we can sort of better understand where everyone's heads at. Maintainers love it when you complain loudly. <laughs> but please give context. If you just go, my, my code doesn't work, that doesn't help us. Yeah, so I was trying to read up on the Composition API last night in preparation for this episode. So at least as of recording time, I found it really hard to find in the docs because I was looking through the table of contents and it seemed like it was organized in like a really functional or I guess specific order with the things you need to get started up and then components in depth. And so I was really expecting it to be in components in depth and it wasn't there. And then I was like, okay, it'll be under reusability and composition, right? Because it's the composition API and it wasn't there. And I felt kind of silly that it took me so long to find it at the bottom, but I found it a bit confusing that it was all the way in advanced guides. Yeah, that's great feedback. It's a tricky thing when we were talking about the information architecture of this, because while those places you mentioned are places that would have probably been, I guess I would say, more obvious for people to see, 
we've known that from the past when people read the dots, when they're included either in the essential section or components in depth, there's this almost semi-expectation that you kind of need to know this. And so we wanted to avoid the impression that the composition API was basically critical to advancing your view app and your view knowledge. And so that's why topics like reactivity in depth and the composition API were at least at the time of this recording, like under an advanced guide section, just to make it explicitly clear to users that like this is not something you have to learn. This is something that when you need it and you want to look for it, like here it is. But that's, I mean, to your point, there's something to be said about maybe other ways we can still achieve the same impact without sort of making it harder to find. Yeah, I guess just for me, composition is one of the biggest jargon words that I hear said a lot. I really thought the composition API would be there. But also, if I didn't know about it, it kind of reminds me of the saying about how do you know when you need a flux architecture? Well, when you need it, you'll know. And if you don't know, you don't really know any context for it or have any idea of when you'll get to that point where you know you'll need to know it. So like, if I don't know anything about reactivity and composition API and how that plays into the rest of this stuff, but I know you essentially is all about reactivity. And there's this composition section. It's like, how do I understand when I need to use these things and how they fit into the context of you as a whole? Yeah, that's totally fair. I'm definitely will take that feedback back to the team. I love those explanations. You'll understand it when you need it. Okay, chicken and egg. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm totally guilty of having given that answer to someone, especially about flux architectures. But then I think about how, because I actually had that experience where like, I didn't really get something until I needed it. And that was specifically, I was on a lovely polymer project. (laughs) Everybody's favorite. Yeah. (laughs) That was when I realized that I needed Redux. And honestly, the only reason I knew to reach for it was because when I was at a boot camp, I saw this flyer in one of the bathroom stalls about a talk for React and Redux and how you know when you need Redux. And it said something about state management. And I was like, wait, is this when I need it? Nice. (laughs) What it was, I was like, oh, this is when I need it. So yeah. If you take it to this logical extreme, I feel like it's when you don't know about when you would need that kind of thing and you're in a position where you're like, nothing works. I need something else. At that point, you're very vulnerable. Like any solution somebody gives you, you'd be like, I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah, like Redux. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the tricky part on the flip side of that is that when you give people too much information up front, then people get paralyzed or either they try to find reasons to use that technique. And that's what we also want to avoid. Because again, because of, as you mentioned, Tessa, there was that impression that like composition API is going to walk in and replace all the, you know, options API stuff. Like things like this will take a long time to dispel. And I think it'll still continue to permeate, unfortunately. And so we unfortunately have to try to guard against that as much as can, because again, the options API on its own, you can do so much with it. You don't even need the composition API. And so I'll make sure to take that feedback back to the team for sure. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, my impression was not that that idea stemmed from, you know, anything with regards to docs organization. It was more about language and the original RFC. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think if it was in context and had warnings there, maybe that would be helpful. But yeah, just in case anybody else is listening to this and wondering where it is, scroll down to the bottom in advanced guides and you'll find it there. Yeah, I sometimes worry about diving too deep into the composition API, just because whenever there's a shiny new toy, people like using shiny new toys. But I also feel like, you know, sometimes a shiny new toy is not the right thing to be playing with in the moment, like, you know, (laughs) at a funeral or something, or when your app becomes your own funeral because you got too involved in the composition API when you didn't need it. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, I'm really afraid of it, to be quite honest. 
Understandably so. And that's why I think what I recommend people do is just create some small apps with it. So again, as more tutorials and courses come out, then I think those will help to provide a little bit more of that playground environment for people to see what exactly is happening. So we'll need some time on that. So we've talked pretty broadly about the Composition API. What are some of the more specific features of it that we didn't have before? What is exposed by the Composition API? Yeah. So the number one thing you'll see with the Composition API, which is universal, is the setup method, which basically you can think of it a little bit like a lifecycle hook because it instantiates and runs the code at a certain point in the component lifecycle. And so when it comes to that, you'll see that when people run the setup, Again, I would say, again, it's not running at the same time, but think of it like the mounted lifecycle hook. That's what people are most familiar with. So it's just like when the component is starting up, like setup will do things to, as the name says, like set things up for use. And so as far as things that it exposes to us, helper methods, uh, importing helper methods from Vue is going to be probably become a lot more common in Vue 3. So that's going to be a little bit of a change. So for example, one of the things a lot of us do is code splitting our components. And so the way we typically do this in Vue 2 was we would just write an anonymous function that returns the import of the component. This is a common pattern found in Vue Router, for example, so that the component is only imported when you're actually trying to load it. I feel like you used a lot of big words that maybe we all are doing, <laughs> but did not understand those words. So you lost me at a lot of us do code splitting. <laughs> Okay, so maybe we do this inadvertently. So for anyone who's using Chris's enterprise boilerplate, I know this is done inside of his routes file. And so when I say code splitting, basically, when we think of the code bundle we're delivering to the user, if they're only loading the home page, we really don't want to deliver them the user page and then the item page. They don't need that stuff yet. And so code splitting, a lot of it, this is what Vue does really well for us. A lot of times it does it automatically for us, certain things. like So it tries to be as performant as possible. But one of the techniques Chris taught in his workshop is the ability to code split components, which is by running an anonymous function that imports the components. It basically tells Webpack that like, hey, this thing that the user might need, split it off. They don't need it right now. They might need it later. So that's why it's a function that will call the import. Like, it basically go fetch the bundle that it needs. So we've talked about a lot of different aspects of the Composition API today, but I'm curious how everyone would sum this up for our listeners. Like, is there one core thing that you want them to take away? I'll start it off. I think that it's important to remember that just because you can use a tool doesn't mean you should. If we want to continue to make Vue accessible to new developers, which I think that that's something that is important for us to continue to do as a community, I think we need to realize that the more accessible option will continue to be the options API. So I would just say use sparingly. Yeah, can't echo this already point enough. I know there are plenty who will like a lot of the ergonomics that Composition API provides, but remembering that the ability to use Composition API is something that is additive and used to enhance your code and basically try to avoid pre-optimizing because some people will try to avoid certain things like, oh, what if I run into this really niche case? Like when you run into it, that's the time to use it. Trying to do it in advance of the problem is the traditional pre-optimization is the root of all evil cliche in programming. So what about you, Tessa? Yeah, I agree, especially underscoring Ari's point about just because you can use something doesn't mean you should. Like when I think about the previous team I was on, we had a ton of components, but I don't really think we had a lot of need for something like the composition API, where on my current application, 
we have a lot of higher order components and gigantic mix-ins. And so that's a case where I feel like maybe a combination of the composition API and moving some things into the store could be very helpful. But that being said, there are so many components that I've worked on where I don't think that I would have needed the composition API and the options API, at least to me, made for a lot more readable component. But I am curious going forward to see what kind of example use cases the Vue team comes up with. Right now, the composition API reminds me a little bit of when I was using React a few years ago. And sometimes you wrote a component one way, and then if you wanted some other functionality, you had to refactor it to be like a completely different way. And right now, it feels a little bit to me like that. So I'm curious how the ergonomics will stay the same or get its edges worn away going forward. Yeah, it should be an interesting discussion to see how the team and the community goes forward to push the limits and boundaries on the new paradigm. Cool. And with that, it is time for us to move on to this week's picks. Ari, would you like to get us started? Sure. I have one pick this week. It is Marvel app, which is not what you think it is unless you're already familiar with it. Uh, (laughs) It is basically a rapid prototyping tool that is so easy to use that non-technical people on your team can use it and contribute to making new designs, new (laughs) designs, (laughs) designs, (laughs) complete with click-throughs for any new functionality that you want to mock up. Very cool. Tessa, how about yourself? Yeah, it's funny because design reminds me of that HGTV show that's not on anymore, Design on a Dime, where they're always like, (laughs) you can DIY this part of your house for cheap, and it looks awful, but it's always really fun to see what they came up with. It's not a metaphor for my code base, or, you know, (laughs) that's confidential. But it's funny because uh, (laughs) my pick for this week is a school in California called Concept Design Academy. I've been taking a few classes there, and it's really fun. And also, it's kind of nice to be in a situation where I'm getting feedback regularly and I feel confident that it's a pretty safe environment. Like, I'm not afraid to get feedback and I get it on a regular basis. It's just really nice. And also, I think it's always fun to be in a learning environment post when people are required to be in school because people want to be there learning the thing. And so it's always just really exciting to be studying amongst classmates who are trying to achieve personal goals. Yeah. And so if anybody is looking to learn some technical drawing skills, I would recommend this program, although maybe not more than two classes if you are working a full-time job and or have not studied art before. Uh, Ben, do do you want to share any picks? Did they happen (laughs) to be the Marvel app and CDA, Concept Design Academy? No, you both stole my picks. How could you? All right. So my pick for this week, I guess, is the new iPhone 12 Pro, which I got recently and have had a chance to use for a little while. And so the screen, I do enjoy the larger screen size without being overly large. And we had to order the max size. So for those sort of interested, if they're about upgrading, I would totally recommend the iPhone 12 Pro. I have the blue one. It's the nice shade of steel blue. But yeah, of course that you is have my the blue pick one. for this week. Yeah, I, just, I figured it's on brand. <laughs> Stick with blue. Okay. Quick question. Why did you choose the Pro over the regular model? Or did you even have oh, reasons? Right. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Good question, yeah. Ari. <laughs> I believe, yeah, the specs on the cameras were better as far as like functionality. And for those who don't know, I'm on the iPhone upgrade plan. So I just basically, whenever they have upgrades, it's just sort of swapping it out for the latest one. So I figured I might as well get the highest end one. <laughs> Is there like an Insta or something where people can see these photos? 
that's true. I am trying to get to the point where I'm actually reviewing hardware on the YouTube channel, so we'll see about that in the future. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, thanks everybody for listening today, and until next week, enjoy the view. Bye.